welcome to the Beyond Writing Podcast, brought to you by Bright Little Light Press. I'm your host, Dakari Carey, and today we've got guest host Kay Rhodes with us. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about protecting your digital assets. This is something a lot of people neglect and don't really think about when it comes to your writing career. People, for some reason, don't think of it like a business. And there are a lot of things that go along with your writing that you are not thinking about and are not really taking the effort to protect to ensure you always have access to it. Yep. So we're talking about things like um, not just your manuscript, but your cover art, any ad images you might have, uh, any videos if you make video trailers or if you do videos to promote your book, um, any sort of audio things, like if you were to do a podcast interview for somebody, anything that you do that is not just your manuscript and oftentimes you pay people money for this. So Especially when you pay people money for this. Like when you buy cover art or ad images from a professional graphic designer, you paid someone good money for that. What happens if that if your hard drive dies and you lose access to that? That's actual monetary loss. You have to think of these things. Your digital assets represent a real monetary value just like any other physical asset you have, like a printer that you buy for your work. Or if you were to do a print run of books, those are physical assets. Your digital assets are even more important in most cases, especially when your entire business is online. Yeah, or in a computer. Even you know, even if you have a manuscript that you ship off to a publisher and you don't put anything online yourself, that's still a ton of time if anything happens to that computer or your house. Or so today we're going to talk about uh, digital storage options, and that includes physical storage on-site and cloud-based storage off-site, and why it's important to have both of those things. And some of the things you don't really think about as being digital assets, like email, uh, domains, websites, things like that, that are still digital assets and you still have to protect those in different ways you can do that. And I want to give you a heads up right now. Normally I do these podcast recordings off hours, but this one we're recording in the middle of the day. It's kind of noisy outside. We uh, do not have a soundproof studio and we have a really good microphone. So there might be some background noise today and I apologize. So I want to actually, I made notes for myself. There's one other thing that most people don't think about when it comes to what are your digital assets, and that is invoices. If you are writing Mm -hmm. off your expenses on your taxes, you're going to have to have proof of these expenses. So it it doesn't count just to have like an accounting software like QuickBooks or something. You actually have to have paper trail in case the IRS ever audits you. So you need to download copies of your invoices for all the things you pay money for, And ideally, if you can do a proof of payment, that's even better. But some of that can come through your accounting software. But you do need the physical invoices, at least in a digital form. Or the ability to generate them later. Like if you use a cloud cloud service for your invoices. Well, for some of the other reasons we're going to talk about why cloud services are not ideal, I would argue that you need to have a local copy as well. You can't rely on having the cloud copies forever. Yep, yep, absolutely. But we'll talk about that when we get into the cloud services part. So when it comes to backing up your digital assets, there are a few different options. First is the one that a lot of people probably are using already, and that is physical backup. Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And maybe when you do physical backups, it's just because you only have a certain amount of hard drive space, so you put other things off on an external drive, or maybe you're actually smart and you back up everything on your laptop that's important. But there's a few different ways of doing physical backups, and all of them involve having an external hard drive of some sort. 
So the first option is just a regular old external hard drive that you plug into your computer via USB. And this can be something like a Western Digital hard drive. They have something called um, My Passbook or something. It's just intended for like storage that's really off matter. your laptop. Yeah, an exactly. external drive that plugs into your computer and has space on it. I, I'm drawing a distinction though because for a lot of our listeners who are less technical, they need to know that some external drives are fully enclosed, and other external drives are designed to be used in an enclosure. Oh, yeah. So. It's important to know whether or not you need to buy an extra case for it or whether it's just self-contained. Uh, another thing, so so if you have that kind of external drive. Self-contained. Self-contained USB drive that plugs into your laptop, there are a few issues with this type of physical storage. One is remembering to plug it in and do the backups. So I will tell you, when I first started out um, with my writing ages ago, when, just with my freelance career, I would use an external drive to back up my stuff, but remembering to plug it in and actually drag the files over onto the drive was not something that I did very often. No. And it, it, it is very, everyone says like, oh, or who uses this strategy? Oh, I, I will do it every week. And they may do it every week. But then there's that one week where they're really busy or they had to go do somewhere else or whatever the excuse was or simply just forgetting and then they don't have that week's backup. And, you know, what if something bad happens? Or, you know, more likely is, well, I didn't do that one time. And, like, you lose the habit of doing it constantly. And now you're not backing up regularly. Yeah, it's really easy to miss it and lose that habit. And I had the best intentions in the world. I was definitely going to do it. And I just kept forgetting. Or I was not at my desk when I would think about it. Or when my reminder would go off. And then by the time I made it back to my desk, I would forget. There's yeah. so many reasons that this is not a good solution. And then while it's backing up, you can't, you know, walk away. You got to leave your computer. You know, let's just use laptops and you got to leave it on with that thing plugged in and chugging away doing that. And you want to close it and put it in your backpack or whatever. And nope, it's got to stay open and doing its thing till it's done. And this is assuming that you're doing manual backups. So that means you are literally grabbing files on your computer and dragging them over to the external hard drive. So the problem with doing that is, unless you're really regimented about your storage system, which we're going to talk about at the end of the podcast, um, you're going to miss things. You may back up, oh, I only did this one thing this past week, but there may be three other things that you touched but didn't think about it. Mm -hmm. Those things don't get offloaded. Or I only did this, but I got this file from my other, you know, from my uh, graphic designer and forgot about that because I was thinking about what I did. Or I forgot about my invoice because mm -hmm. who thinks about invoices? Um. The other issue is, what happens if this external hard drive fails? So people don't really think about this. This is your backup drive. It's your second drive. So it's not really something that you think about ever having problems with. It's not something you're using every day. You just expect it to work when you plug it in. All drives fail. All drives fail. Given enough time, all drives fail. It's not a question of if this drive is going to fail. It's a question of when. And nowadays, they've gotten much better about communicating to you the average expected lifespan of a drive. Um, we were just shopping for drives yesterday, which I'll talk about a little later, and they had the average expected life in millions of hours. So one of the hard drives was a million hours. So you may think, I'm never going to use a million hours. That's like years worth of occasional backups. That's the average. That doesn't count. Certain models are prone to failure. Maybe there's a defect in the way it's manufactured. 
There are so many things. Maybe you drop it and don't think about it, or maybe it lives in your laptop bag and gets jostled around. Maybe your office has temperature fluctuations. Maybe it gets really hot there in the summer. I mean, there's so many things that can affect the life of a hard drive that we don't think about. Yeah, and given it's better with modern solid-state drives, which cost an arm and a leg still, but even they fail eventually. They have a ma- every they have a maximum number of writes and reads, and so you well probably just writes. But either way, they, they've got a max, and you will hit it, and they're just they don't work after that. They start getting smaller and smaller, and data gets lost. If you're lucky, that maximum number of writes happens long after the other hardware has failed. But it's there's no guarantee. And I will tell you from personal experience, once in my life did I have a hard drive, computer hard drive fail and didn't have a backup. I will never, ever do that again. I lost so much writing. At the time, I hadn't been doing anything professional with the writing. It was just stuff that I had written personally. But there are stories I wrote years and years ago I will never get back. It's just gone. Also, pictures and other things, like if you have pictures that have sentimental value for your family, Mm -hmm. we often don't print those nowadays because we have so many digital files. If those things go away, you're just, they're gone. Right. And even if if you did print it, it's just the whatever quality the printer happened to be and right you know 20 years from now you're going to go damn i wish i had the original yeah absolutely so that is using an external hard drive that you plug in via usb and you manually have to remember to drag files over to it sort of the next step up from that is to have an external hard drive that you plug in manually via usb but it has an automatic backup function so i believe western digital comes with software that will automatically backup files And probably the other hard drive manufacturers do as well. There's a lot of software options for this. So this is sort of like a step up because then you don't have to remember to manually drag all these files over to the hard drive. It does this automatically in the background. But it still has all the other issues we talked about, like having to leave your computer open while it's backing up. Um, Having to remember to plug it in. Having to remember to plug it in. And still that issue of what happens when the hard drive fails. In this case, it may actually hasten the demise of the hard drive because it's backing up continually at whatever amount of time. So say you have it backing up every hour, it's writing to the hard drive every hour as opposed to once a week. I mean, it's good. I, I would not, uh, She, well, Dacry is technically correct. I would not take that as a reason to not use a continuous backup system. Please yeah, don't. no, no, no. I don't mean it in that way at all. The other thing we didn't really talk about with regard to the manually backing up, if you have a strategy of doing it like once a week, a week's worth of work can be a lot of work for some people. Like if you go on a writing retreat or something and you write every day and you write five or 7,000 words every day, that's like thirty-five to 50,000 words. That's a whole freaking novella or novel that you've lost because you didn't back up for a week. So continuous backup systems... Absolutely. I highly advocate them. But what are the odds that when you're on that writing retreat, you're going to go, oh, every night I will plug in my external drive and back up what I did. No, you're going to be hanging out with the other people at the retreat or a conference or whatever it is. Or you forget to bring your external drive with you and then you just don't likely. have it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the next step up is to have that automatic backup software. And that's definitely an improvement, but you can even do better than that. But uh, before we go there, you know, there is, that is very easy Right. To do, like, on the Mac, we've got Time Machine. On Windows, they've got, uh, what is it called? Backup. Uh, let's see. There's two things on Windows. One of them is file history. And 
I don't know. Anyways, in both system cases, you go into your system preferences and you turn on the backup stuff and then you just don't worry about it. As long as it finds its drive and you've scheduled it to backup, it'll do its job. Yeah, on Windows, there's two options. One of them is a file history option, so it will give you earlier versions of a file. And the other one is sort of a disk imaging option, so it will make a copy of your... It will note the important things about your entire hard drive's configuration, which includes what software you have installed and all that stuff. So if you ever lose your hard drive, like if it dies, you can recreate it from that. And Time Machine does the same thing for the Mac. The, The key thing to pay attention to is... Whatever system you choose, it should be a system that you don't have to think about. I mean, that's the ideal. So getting into that, the next step up is network-connected storage. And you will often see things that are intended for this with the abbreviation NAS or NAS, Network Access Storage. So it's the idea is you plug it into your router and you never have to think about it. It's always there in the background whenever your computer is doing stuff. So this is what we had been doing. Our um, We have Mac laptops, and we have a an Apple time capsule. Which they don't make anymore. And that is our external hard drive. So our Mac laptops would talk to the Apple time capsule maybe every hour. I forget what the setting is. Yeah, it would basically check on your computer, you know, oh, have a, every hour it would check and go, oh, is there any new stuff? I'm going to schlep over the new stuff and store it on this external drive. And, like, we never thought about it, and we have total backups, copies of our things on there. And that's so comforting and reassuring. But again, this is only a partial solution. It has the same issues as an external hard drive that you physically plug into your laptop in that what happens if your hard drive fails? This time capsule is the only thing we've had capturing our backups for, I don't know, six years since we bought it. So While capturing your backups. (laughs) If that drive fails... Everything's gone. And we actually have another drive for redundancy, but I don't know how they're set up right now. They're not copying each other. So that's a problem. Um, So it is a step up from one that you have to physically plug in via USB because it's always available as long as you're connected to your network. If you're on Wi-Fi, it's there. Your computer's backing up. So you don't have to think about it, and it takes out the chore of remembering to plug it in. Yeah, that... Everybody screws up. Every, like everyone does. You are not – unless you are like seriously asperger and capable of like doing really minuscule tasks repeatedly day in, day out, every month, every year and not missing them, you're going to screw it up. Yeah, you're going to mess. You're, you're going to forget. You're going to not do it for whatever reason. You, you need – this is things computers are good at, just dumb repetitive tasks. Exactly. So that is a step up. Um, the downside with that one is, again, what happens if that drive fails? Or the house goes up in flames. Well, we haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah. Um, but so it is possible to have a network, a NAS storage, network-connected storage, that doesn't automatically back up your hard drive, so you still have to manually remember to drag files over to it. Don't do that. Don't do that. At least use the automatic copy functions, which for us on Mac is Time Machine If you're on Windows, there's file history, and Windows Backup and Restore is the other one that creates the disk image. And some uh, external hard drives also come with their own version of this software, so they have their own system for detecting changes and writing it. Definitely use the software. You want this to be an automatic function that's happening in the background that you don't have to remember to do. 
So a step up from a single drive that's connected to your network is a RAID array that is connected to your network. So it would be NAS RAID array. And what this is, is it is an enclosure that will hold multiple hard drives. And depending on how you configure it, it will capture your backup information on multiple drives. So one way to do it is to have each of the drive have all of the content. So it's sort of like mirroring the other drive. Yep. And another way to do it is to distribute the content across multiple drives such that if one of the drives goes out, the content can be recreated from the stuff that's on the other drives. Yep. And if you if you care, go to Wikipedia and search for RAID and there are different RAID levels 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. And but basically what you care about is there's one version that just mirrors it and there's another version that allows, you know, one drive to fail. There's another version that allows two drives to fail. But basically what you care about is the fact that there is redundancy among your backup drives. So if one of them fails, you don't lose all of your backup data. Yep. That is really important. <laughs> and a lot of people feel like making that step from a single network connected drive or even a USB drive to a RAID array is just really frightening, it's really technically difficult, it's a lot of money, I don't need that, it's overkill. Let me tell you, if you are taking your authoring business seriously, you need it. It is just like any other business. These are your assets. These are money to you. You, you buy insurance for your house, this is insurance for your data. Exactly. You, you can't... Your business would be lost if you lost all of your content. You At the very least, if you've hired a graphic designer... You would be out thousands or tens of thousands of dollars eventually. If you're actually making an income from your books and you lose those files, you don't have the ability to do anything with them anymore, and you're losing that income, essentially. Yeah. But for the people on a tighter budget, as long as you – if you've got an external drive, preferably some NAS storage, but if you've got an external drive and that drive never contains files that don't also exist on your main computer, then in effect, you do have a backup. If your network attached, if your, if your external drive fails, you've got a backup, which is the place it started. And if your main computer dies, you've got the backup in the external storage. But if you ever put things on the external drive that don't exist anywhere else... My caveat around that would be I would not rely on that as a source of redundancy because most people, when their backup drives die, they don't notice it. They don't think about it. And the software that backs up automatically isn't really good about popping up in your face and saying, hey, this stopped working. Yeah, usually it specifically doesn't because there will be many times when the external drive isn't there and that's fine because, oh, well, I don't have it plugged in right now. And you really don't want it constantly jabbering at you. Hey, I don't see it. Hey, I don't see it. Hey, I still don't see it. So they don't. They don't, you know. Usually what happens is the appearance of the icon in your menu bar may change slightly, but it's a really subtle change you may not notice. And to give you personal experience again... Um, I think last year there was a time when the external drive was not storing our backups for something like six months, and we never noticed. We didn't notice that process had stopped because it was in the background and it was automatic. And I think what happened was it lost the connection, and once we went into the drive and like said, oh yeah, connect to this drive again, it was fine. Right. It wasn't a, an issue. But that's six months worth of data we would have lost if our laptops had died. So don't rely on that redundancy between your laptop and your backup drive you really and and like Kay said I don't mean to fear monger if you don't have the budget for a RAID array 
Don't feel like, oh my gosh, my business is threatened, but do work on budgeting for it. Save up money for it. Prioritize this as something to really invest in your business and make sure you're safe. Right. And and the total cost, which we'll get to later, it's it's not that bad. No. There's a lot of things that have bells and whistles that you probably don't need. Yeah. That you can cut those costs. You can spend a ton. You can spend a little. There's multiple choices. Absolutely. Um, and so to pr- put this in perspective, we were thinking about this. We've been thinking about this off and on recently. And I've been seeing a lot of discussions around how people back up their writing. And I realized that people are never talking about how do you back up your cover art or how do you back up all these other things that are important to your business. And I spoke to Kay and we're like, yeah, we we know better, but we still don't have a good backup solution. So we need to just well, deal with it. I have a good backup solution. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we'll get to that. We do know better and we should have a good on-site backup solution. We, we've been really lax about this for the past many years. And we know how to do better. So we went and shopped for uh, Synology, was, which is a specific brand of a RAID array box, basically. Okay. It's network-attached storage with a lot of bells and whistles, depending on which version you get. Right. And we ordered hard drives to go in it because the Synology does not come with hard drives, so you can put in whatever size is appropriate for your needs. And when we get that, it's going to have instructions walk you through setting up the RAID array you don't have to know anything about computers. You just follow a wizard and say, this is what yeah, I have. It, they really do have all this backup stuff, point and click, you know, do this next. Do you want X? Yes. Okay. Click. So don't be afraid. If you are not a technical person, don't be scared by the word RAID or array. Yeah. There's plenty of help. Or with even the... network attached storage. It's just yeah. a hard drive that's not connected through a USB port. It's connected through your network. And whenever you're using these systems, they have software wizards to walk you through setting them up. So you don't have to know doodly squat about how to do it. So another thing to think about if you're using a physical backup option is you're probably going to want a UPS. And what that is, is it's a battery backup system so that if you lose power, the devices that are connected to it will still have power for some amount of time. Right. This is more applicable for the network ones than an external hard drive on your laptop because your laptop will have power and it will keep having power even when the power goes out. So what I was about to say, okay, completely just jumped in there. Sorry. Um, (laughs) If you have an external drive that you plug into your laptop via USB, it doesn't need power. It gets power from your computer. But if you have a network-attached storage device, it probably has its own power outlet. So that's going to need to be plugged into a USB, and the reason for that is... UPS. UPS, sorry. Thank you. Um, The reason for that is if your power goes out... While those disks in the drive are spinning, it can corrupt the data on the disks, and the drives can die, essentially. It's unlikely your drive will die, but it can corrupt the data, and this applies to solid-state drives, too. If Whenever uh, a computer is writing data to some physical storage, be it solid-state or a spinning disk, if in the middle of writing that out, the power cuts out, like it can't finish the right correctly because there's no no power right so you know it can happen with anything usually you're not going to kill your drive but you could corrupt the data that you just backed up and the whole point of this is to have access to that data so if the data gets corrupted essentially it's like not having a backup at all right and the other advantage and we we didn't explicitly say it but ups is an uninterruptible power supply which basically means the power goes out and it's got a big battery in it and it keeps powering whatever's plugged into it for a while depending on 
how big of a battery it is. And how many things are plugged into it. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so we, I just shopped for these, so I'm really conversant on it right now. And what I was seeing was a lot of them had enough battery power for maybe like five minutes. So it would be enough to finish that write operation so that your disk drive won't get damaged, but not enough to power it for like four hours while your power is out. Right. And I actually saw one review, a woman who bought one of these things and took it camping with her and wanted it to power her CPAP machine overnight. And it died after about two hours. And I kind of laughed because they're not intended to function for like 10, 12 hours. These are not massive batteries. These are supposed to just, they're, they're pretty much for exactly what Daiquiri said. Letting, you know, you finish off what you're doing and then turning your things off before, you know, the battery runs out. And the, the other advantage to these is like, yes, that's a great advantage. But it's also another form of insurance in that, let's say there's a bolt of lightning hits your house. This happens fairly regularly. And, you know, that's why they people have um, lightning Search rods. Protectors. So they have lightning rods. Uh. But also your UPS is a really, usually a very good surge protector. So if there's a power surge from the power company, from lightning, from whatever, anything that's plugged into that and doesn't have access to power via other means... Um, is going to just be protected from that surge. Yeah, um, so a good thing to note, a lot of people, it's very common now, we all have surge protectors for things like our laptops and our TVs. The UPS can provide, as Kay said before, uninterrupted power. So this can also be an issue if your house doesn't have clean power, like if there are often power fluctuations coming in and you get different voltages a lot. A lot of devices don't care about that, but maybe your NAS storage drive might. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not good for, you know, voltage fluctuations are not good for most electronics. Yeah. The more expensive the electronic, the more it's going to care. So so it just sort of helps to insulate your electronics from that sort of issue. And the other issue being maybe you don't get blackouts often, but maybe you are living in an area that's prone to brownouts. That's not uncommon either. So this can sort of like help get you through those lulls where you just don't have access to regular power. Yeah. Um, one thing to keep in mind, though... If you, when you are shopping for a UPS, just look at how long it's going to provide power. And these estimates can vary widely. It really depends on what you have plugged into it. Yeah. So if you only have one thing plugged into it, it's going to provide power for longer. But if you have like some of the ones I was looking at, I think the one I bought had like eight power outlets. If I have eight things plugged into that and, and they're, they're all running. drawing power, yeah. it's going to go really fast. Some of them have readouts on the front that tell you, at this load, how long will this last? So that can be helpful. Some of them have um, the ability you can plug in additional battery packs that are outside of the UPS to extend the battery life. So if you live in an area where you get brownouts often that are for four or six hours, you might want to have something that can connect with external battery packs. This would give you the ability to have like internet, for example, while those are out, while the power is out. Depending on how you get your internet. Yeah. Um, So, like, think about your specific use case, and the cheapest option can protect your um, NAS, your backup device. But if you go a little bit higher in what you buy, you can actually get a lot of other benefits beyond just that. And one of the nice benefits that uh, you can get is if you've got a NAS with more capabilities, not just a dumb drive on the network... Uh, then you can have UPSs that can talk to your NAS and say, hey, the power just went out. You should do whatever is important for you to do now and prepare for having no power. 
and you no human has to be involved, and that's a very nice thing. Yeah, it really is. Um, if you're really not a technical person and all these things that we're saying are kind of scary to you, don't worry too much. Um, read reviews on Amazon. A lot of people are really good about breaking down how the things work, what their practical use is when they get at home, and also there's the option to ask questions of people. So read the questions that people have asked on Amazon. And it can help you find something that will work for your needs. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that Dacry did uh, last night was when we were purchasing the Synology, there was a list of, you know... Compatible UPSs. Right. And frankly, we didn't go down the rabbit hole of what exactly they do. Like, I know that what I said before is possible that there are UPSs that can talk to. Like, we didn't care. Like, we'd been... We don't... We want it to be safe. We want it to be backed up. But we don't care about that level of detail of the hardware and it's like you approve this these things work together great it's got enough power for us for the battery excellent done don't care about the details i care a little more just because i'm sort of a geek about stuff like that so i looked at some of the different things that were compatible we got one of the synologies that had a few more bells and whistles um the one we got has the ability to stream video to your devices so we have a bunch of Blu-ray and DVD discs that are just sitting around, taking up space. We never watch them. We figure we can put those on the Synology and then stream that to our devices without, like, if we never are ever without Netflix or Hulu or something and need something to watch. Or and also we can just get rid of that, those physical those discs, discs. Yeah. And so the one that does this transcoding and streaming, it has more power consumption needs up front. So when it's idling, it consumes more power. And when it's actively writing to the Synology and accessing the Synology, it requires more power. So the UPS that is allowed to be used with that, the compatible um, UPS with that device, are different than the ones that are just for dumb disk drives that don't need as much power. Right. Which is another reason to ask if the vendor has these things. Like, oh, hey, they figured this out for me. Excellent. And a thing to note about the Synology, again, just because this is what we just bought, um, on the Synology site, on their list of compatible devices, they tell they give you the option of saying, oh, who says this is compatible? Does Synology say this is compatible? Or does the vendor of the device say this is compatible? The vendor of the device may not have the same rigorous testing that Synology has, because they're the people who make the dang NAS drive. Right. So I was only shopping for things that Synology had tested and said, yes, this is compatible. If there's a problem later... And I need to go to Synology and say, hey, this thing broke. The first thing they're going to say is, what were you using with it? And is it compatible? Just something to think about. Now, let's get into cloud services. Yay. Yay. <laughs> this is the thing that Kay was kept saying, well, you don't have a good backup strategy. Kay has all of his crap backed up to the cloud because he is a developer. He thinks about these things, and he's been smart about his backup strategy. Yeah, I can, I can recreate my computer very quickly with very little work, um, and I've got it all automated. I've written software to automate the downloading of the many, many apps and installing and configuring many things. And But I can do that because all of my personal stuff is backed up in the cloud, and all the apps I download are already in the cloud because that's where they come from. So I have not been as regimented about my backup storage so we're going to talk about what are the cloud services that are available. But before we get into the specific options, why do you need cloud? Here's what happens. Horrib hopefully, 
this thing will never happen to you. But there are times when something horrible happens, your house is destroyed. Earthquake, hurricane, fire, flood. Yeah, these are horrible things. I hope they never happen to you, but they happen to people all the time. Yeah, we live in a good neighborhood. There are fairly regularly, you know, good neighborhood in a city. And because it's in a city, there are, you know, robberies at fairly regular intervals. And you know what? That could always be you. Yeah, they, uh, robbers, by the way, love laptops. They're easy to transport, and they resell fairly well. Yep. So you could definitely lose your laptop. I think you'd be less likely to use a NAS, lose a NAS to theft, because who wants to carry around a bulky external drive? But if it looks like a computer... And also, di- you're, they're also not up in the front. They're usually, like, oh... Hidden somewhere. Hidden, it's, it's out of sight. I don't. You don't yeah. need to see your NAS. It's just an ugly box that sits in a corner somewhere. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's possible. Um, more likely, though, fire. There yeah. was this fire in London recently, a horrible thing, like a high-rise, and so many people lost everything they have. Including their lives. But including their lives. They um, don't care about backups. <laughs> that's true. Their, their descendants might, though. Uh, that's true. I, that's something that we like, don't talk about. Yeah. Like, what is your legacy to your kids? Maybe there are things you want to pass on to them or you want them to have when yeah. you're not here and anymore. Lo- or, or, you their know, pictures, at the very least. The copy of your will, the copy of the things you own, like all this stuff. Hey, that that's stuff to back up too, and we've we've got the pertinent to writers. We have the new J.R.R. Tolkien book book coming out. Good point. In the modern day and age, like unless he had good backup strategies, that would not be coming out. Like how many years later is that? A long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien has been dead for decades, and uh, the ability to have his estate publish his manuscript decades after his death, that doesn't exist if you have only a digital copy and it gets lost. Yeah, and pretty much no one's writing it out longhand anymore. No. I mean, some people are, but it's atypical. Um, yeah. The other thing, uh, like here in Cambridge, there was a fire uh, last summer, and 108 people were displaced. It destroyed 13 buildings. It was so fast. Um Hurricanes have the ability to take out places or flood them, and flooding can damage your electronics even if the house is still standing. Tornadoes every year in the in the Midwest, yeah, Yeah. in Tornado Alley. Um, Even if you live in an area that's not prone to hurricanes, like here in New England, that's not such an issue for us. But there was Superstorm Sandy that was atypical. It flooded so many houses that never flood. And before that, there was Hurricane Irene, which actually affected people in Vermont, which is a couple states away from the ocean. Yep. But there was so much flooding, roads were swept out. So really, you may not think that this is something you're going to have an issue with, but And hopefully you never happen. will. <laughs> yeah. I, I pray that any of you who are listening never have to go through this. But people do every day. Oh, forest fires. Let's not forget those. Mm. Mm. Especially if you're in California. Yeah. Okay, so because these things are possible... You should not have the only copy of all of your important assets be in your physical location. You need to have your stuff out in the world somewhere, off-site. Um, this is something a lot of businesses do as well, and if you are thinking of your author career as a business, which you should be, you need an off-site disaster recovery strategy. You need an off-site data recovery strategy. So why don't we dive right in and talk about the services that are available to um, provide this off-site storage? So 
when I was doing a quick research for this, I basically focused on the simple ones for individuals and ignored everything enterprisey. Uh, An enterprise means something like a big corporation would use. Right. Although a lot of these companies, if for some reason, like maybe you're also a photographer and, you know, you know, professional photographers use up a ton of disk space. It's nothing compared to what professional videographers do. But if you're a writer, probably more likely you're. <laughs> Anyways. I, I do know of some writers who are also cover designers, and that's how they start out, but then they get into writing. Right. The covers e- either take way, up a huge amount of space, too. There are a number of these services have actually quite affordable enterprise options, which are more designed the, at the low end, starting at small companies like three to five people. So those companies don't have a ton of money, and they actually do have some affordable options, but we're not really going to be talking about these. We're going to be talking about solutions for a fairly typical individual who has a bunch of writing, and maybe like us, you've got a bunch of photos too, but I'm not going to go into the, oh my god, you need unlimited storage options. Um, so your basic things are you've got Dropbox. Which, which many of you are probably already using. Right, hopefully, uh, which basically puts a, com- a, f- a folder on your computer and everything in that folder is going to be backed up to the cloud. Uh, so you can't back up your whole computer. It's just the stuff in this folder. But as long as you put all of your writing and all of your invoices and all of your photos that you care about into that uh, folder, you're good. But like Dakari said, you've got to be pretty regimented about your uh, how you organize your data so that they are always in that folder. And we'll give you some tips about that toward the end of the podcast. Sure. Uh, there's bo- oh, a Dropbox is currently charging uh, $8.25 a month for one terabyte. Uh, they also have a free tier, which is much less. Yeah, oh, yeah. I f- forgot to write down the free tier. It's not that much data. It's like 250 gigs. No, it's not even. I think it's like 200 gigs. I don't know. I'm using the free tier of Dropbox or have been for years. And it's fine for just my writing. But if I wanted to start backing up um, the podcasts we're recording, for example, or the cover designs that Bright Little Light Press has gotten for the books that we're publishing, all that stuff adds up really quickly in terms of space. So my free Dropbox account isn't going to be big enough. Right. Now, and before we go much more into the prices, it should be noted right now, it is... June 18th, 2017. These but price- when you listen to this, it's going to be a couple weeks from now. Sure. But uh, there are – the prices are constantly going to be in flux. Apple just introduced, for example, two terabytes for $9.99 a month, $9.99 a month on iCloud Drive, which we'll get to in a second, which means that everyone else is about to have two terabytes for this. And the prices are just going to keep dropping, which is great for us. So, you know, in general, we're looking at about 10 bucks a month. Uh, so or ne- free if you or have free not much for, space. Yeah, if free if you have not much space. Um, Box is pretty much the same idea as Dropbox. It's just another company that does similar things. A, one advantage to Dropbox is, especially if you use iOS, and I suspect Android too, there are a ton of apps which know how to integrate with Dropbox. They will store their, you know, they will use the native storage like in... Apple, you've got iCloud Drive, and a lot of them will know how to use that, but a lot of them also know how to use Dropbox and interact with files on there. So So what Kay means by that is if you have a laptop and you also have a smartphone, 
Dropbox can be used in both places, and the apps on your smartphone know how to talk to Dropbox. You don't have to know any super magic to, like, save it there or to sync it there. Yeah, you just... They will either automatically do it or ask you where you want to save it, and you put it on Dropbox, and then your desktop can have it or your other, you know, tablet or phone or whatever. So that... I just want to say a lot of writers use this when they're syncing across devices. Like, say, sometimes you write at your laptop, but maybe if you are writing while you commute, you write on your phone or your iPad. Dropbox can do all that for you in the background, all that syncing. So you're always working on the same file. And it's... Yeah, like she said, the key is in the background. You don't have to think about pressing a sync button. You save the file, and next time you open it up somewhere else, it's updated. Uh, Box is a perfectly good service. It just doesn't have the market share that Dropbox has, so it's not as integrated into everything else. Which means that maybe the apps that would sync automatically to Dropbox may not sync automatically to Box. You may have to find some manual solutions to do that. Right. And Dropbox and Box both offer versioning, which is you can see old versions of a file. So, for example, if I accidentally selected a paragraph, hit delete, and hit save, like, oh, my God, my finger switched. What, what was I thinking? I, I need that back. Like, you've just deleted that, Right. There are past versions of the files stored in these services. Uh, I don't believe either of them has all of the past versions, but like the last 10 or so, something like that. I haven't looked in the details. You, These are not something that should be considered for a version to back up history, but they happen to have that feature, and it's a nice to have when you need it. And that would be comparable to, on a Windows machine, file history. Yep. It gives you backup or different versions of this document before the current one. Right. Although I suspect file history does a much better job than right. Box or Dropbox because that'll probably give you all of the versions of the history. Yeah. Um, if you're going to think about using this versioning feature, look into what the different providers offer in terms of how many different versions they will store and how you access them and if you can see the differences between them or if you just have to like know that, oh, it... This time last week, uh, I hadn't deleted that paragraph yet, so I have to go back to the one a week ago. Right. Uh, but, and most of these services charge on a per-user basis, not a per-device basis. So you could have 40 computers and one Dropbox account, and you'll pay the same price. Same for Box, same for most everything. Uh, Box is currently charging $5 a month for 100 gigabytes, which isn't very much, or unlimited for $15 a month, which is pretty sweet. Yeah, unlimited is a lot, but most people don't need that. Yeah, Uh, especially writers because text files are pretty small. Right. When you start getting into the images, that's where things add up quickly. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't worry about a handful of cover art images. It's when you start taking thousands and thousands of photos or do anything with video. I don't know. Cover art images, if you get the layered PSD files, can be really sizable. Sure, but most people don't have that many books. Well, if you also have ad images, those add too. Um, I think right now with only... Two published titles, a novella, and an upcoming title. The uh, art related to those titles for Bright Little Light Press is over a gigabyte. Right. So next up we have Google Drive, which if you are an Android user, I would highly recommend because it is very well integrated into the Android ecosystem and uh, they've got really good the the desktop support is you know fairly similar to uh, Dropbox and Box but you're going to have spectacular integration with your Android devices so I I would definitely recommend that. Uh, One thing to keep in mind there are two different ways to use Google Drive. 
One is it is an, a backup solution, so it stores your files that you're working with locally. The other option is to use the Google Drive applications for creating your content. So some people actually write their books in Google Drive in their Word documents. Yeah, like Google Sheets for spreadsheets, Google Docs for Docs, you know, all that. So, yes, th- that that is a really key point. It's you. I'm talking specifically about using it as a backing up like everything in this folder type of solution. Yeah, so one thing you should know, if you're using Google Documents to create an your content. So that content lives only in Google. You don't have a local version of it. Um, A, some of the Google things are limited in their functionality. I know, for example, there are things that you can do in Microsoft Word that you cannot do in Google Docs. And the other thing is if it lives only in Google Drive, that's something you want to avoid too. And we'll talk about that in a little more detail. Uh, Google Drive does have versioning. 100 gigs is only $2 a month, which is pretty nice. Uh, terabyte is 10, and that's probably about to become 2 terabytes. And 10 terabytes uh, is $100 a month. Oof, that's a lot. Yeah. Most people don't have 10 terabytes. That's true. Uh, next up, we've got iCloud Drive, which does not have versioning, which is kind of odd considering that Time Machine does have versioning. Time Machine is all about versioning. So the the operating system backup stuff has versioned history, uh, and yet iCloud Drive doesn't. But if you do have a lot of data and you are in the Mac iOS ecosystem, iCloud Drive is a really good choice because everything is going to integrate, and more and more apps are, for a while, they were all just going, well, Apple doesn't offer anything, so we're going to use Dropbox and integrate with that. Now Apple offers iCloud Drive, and it seems to be working pretty well. So more and more of them are integrating with that as an option. And one thing to keep in mind, um, I personally use both iCloud Drive and Google Drive. And the I use iCloud Drive to do um, spreadsheets. So for Bright Little Light Press, I'll track expenses, for example, um, through iCloud Drive. And so I can use the same spreadsheet on my laptop, but then if I'm away from my laptop, I can access that exact same spreadsheet through iCloud Drive on my iPad. So great integration, seamless. It's always there. Um, Google Drive, I just personally hate the interface. <laughs> yeah, It's difficult to find documents in sometimes, and I just don't like the way it works. Whereas with uh, iCloud Drive, there isn't an interface so much as you just open the app and the file you want is right there in the app. Right. It, it is very tightly integrated with uh, if you use... But you have to be a Mac user. Right. You're, if you're a Mac user and you use Pages and all the Mac, pro- uh, the Apple equivalent of Microsoft Office products, like it's a really good choice if you're doing those on multiple computers. Uh, um, yeah. So five gigabytes free, which you will go through very quickly. You can actually back up your whole hard drive, not just a, a file with iCloud Drive. That's fairly new functionality. Uh, 50 gigabytes for 99 cents, 200 gigabytes for 299, and two terabytes for 10 bucks. And I'm on the 200 gigabytes for 299 plan with iCloud Drive just because I use it across a lot of my devices. And they also actually have a family plan now. The 2 terabytes can be shared across your family, which we should probably do because I have the 2 terabyte plan. There we go. Uh, There's also Microsoft OneDrive, which is good if all you ever do is use Microsoft Office stuff. But as you'll have cover art... And, and invoices and, and all the other things we keep telling you, you need to back up. Yeah. So 
I wouldn't really recommend Microsoft OneDrive as an option for this. I mean, it's fine for your uh, Office files, but since you're going to have to probably be paying for a cloud service for these other things anyways, then you're going to need something else. So why pay for two things? Yeah, exactly. You could pay for for OneDrive and a cloud service that can do everything else, or you could just pay for one cloud service that does everything. Right. Uh, Next up is Backblaze. Um, which is currently running, I forgot to bring this up, um, I think they're currently running at $5 a month for your, for the individual plan, it's $5 a month, and that is unlimited storage, and it just works in the background like Apple's Time Machine, and I have heard nothing but rave reviews about this. Um, Backblaze is something that a lot of geeks use, and that's really important to know because Geeks are really picky about security and privacy. They will not use things that infringe on their privacy or that do not have prerequisite security functionality. So if a thing is highly loved by geeks, it's probably a good thing to use. Yeah. Um, And the the other night, the great thing about Backblaze, uh, like iCloud Drive, uh, is... It will back up your whole computer and you don't have to think about it. It will just work in the background and they're, you know, both of these are resource, uh, they're very good about not just like wasting all your CPU cycles on backing up when you're trying to get something done. So what that means is if you're trying to write a document or if you're trying to edit video, you're not going to get the spinning beach ball because your computer's busy backing up. It's going to do all that stuff in the background without interfering with what you're actually doing. Right. And these so $5 a month per user and or sorry, per computer. I so forget. how does that work with uh, mobile devices? So it doesn't really play into it at all. So Backblaze will back up your computer. If your computer needs its stuff back, you're good. Backblaze isn't, as far as I know, designed for sharing stuff across multiple devices like uh, uh, iCloud or uh, Dropbox or any of the things we've mentioned before. They're not about having your file in multiple places. It's about, hey, we are going to make sure your stuff is backed up off-site and you can get it back when you need it. So we are using Backblaze with our Synology. So we're going to have the local backup with across multiple drives using the RAID array. And then that device is going to integrate with Backblaze. So we have a copy of all of those things from our Synology available in Backblaze. Right. So if we ever, if, if our house burns down or something horrible happens, we can always get that data back from Backblaze onto a different network-connected device, but we can't use our phone to go check stuff on the Backblaze. Right. And, well, the way we'll be doing it, we can check it on the Synology. That's true, so, as long as the Synology is functional. Right. This so, is whole, the whole thing about this is the offsite when the Synology is no longer functional. Right. And then the nice thing about the strategy of backing up to a NAS and then having that back up to a cloud is your NAS is always going to be on. It's always going to be there and waiting for you. And the process of copying files up to the server and giving the latest versions and everything, like your computer doesn't have to be on. You know, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be taking away cycles while you're trying to get stuff done because it's being happening. The the NAS really is a very specialized computer with a bunch of hard drives in it sticking on your network. And so it can handle doing all that stuff in the background. and The other thing that is sort of uh, more technical and maybe people aren't going to care about it as much, the NAS is connected to you over your wireless network. 
So transferring data to and from the NAS is going to happen at the speed of your wireless network, which for most people is usually fast. Transferring data from your computer up to the cloud is much slower because that is limited by the internet connection you have. So if that data transfer is happening between the NAS and the cloud, who cares how long it takes? The NAS is just doing its thing. But if it's happening between your laptop and the cloud, you have to have your laptop open. It's going to be doing this for longer. Yeah, most people don't realize it because most people are just dealing with download speeds. They're streaming music. They're rarely uploading much of anything except for the request to, hey, give me the next web page, which is very tiny. Most home internet connections are... So slow to upload. Yeah, they've got very different speeds for upload versus download. And some of you know some of you are fortunate enough to have connections with really fast upload speeds. And if that's you have Fios, I am so envious. Yeah. But, you know, most cable TV, you know, cable internet connections, for example, which a lot of people in the U.S. have, is we can download pretty speedy. We can't upload very quickly at all. And, and if you have satellite, that is way worse. Yeah. So you, you really want something that can just sit in the background and take whatever time it takes to get that stuff uploaded. And, and the transfer between your computer and the NAS happens really fast, so you don't have to worry right. about how long that's going to take. Yeah. And for just so you know, when you first start backing your stuff up to the cloud... And if you've got a computer with, you know, over 100 gigs of stuff on it, you can be talking days of time for that first upload to happen. Like, I've done it before over the weekends, and, oh, Monday morning, still not done. I started Friday night. And so and this can be compounded if you have a lot of personal photos. Yep. Kay and I have tens of thousands of pictures from traveling, and... That photos alone takes days to upload. Yeah. So it's, I'd much rather be able to close my laptop during that time and, you know, not be worrying about it. Oh, it got stopped midway through. So after that, the incremental backups of just the stuff that's changed this afternoon or today are very small and take... Almost instantaneous, depending on what you've got. Yeah, because you, you usually it just is like, oh, just this one file. And usually that file isn't a... Text or something. You, usually it's text, not yeah. like a whole, you know, many hundred meg video. Right. So there are downsides to some of the cloud services, and they don't necessarily need to stop you from using them, but you should at least be aware of this when you're thinking about what you might want to use. Absolutely. One is, if you're using Google Drive, you need to understand that as far as Google is concerned, you are their product. Not their customer. Google Drive is free or really affordable, depending on which tier you're on, because... Google is mining the crap out of your data and selling it to people. Now, they are anonymizing it. They're so. anonymizing it. So it's not like they're getting your credit card number and selling that to someone. It's not or like that. Or saying, oh, Bob is going to have dinner on Tuesday. Well, there's some degree of that, actually. Well, no, it's totally anonymized. So Google does do a good job of protecting your security and anonymizing all your data. But they will sell to advertisers, say, hey, here is someone who eats out regularly. Yeah, um, behaviors can be monetized, and they determine behaviors by the types of things you do. And this isn't just limited to Drive, also your Gmail. If you have a Gmail account, absolutely, Google is monetizing well, the crap out of that. Think about so Google. It's interesting with Google in that they monetize you 
to advertisers. However, in exchange, they give you some really amazing services. For example, with regards to photos, they have got incredible functionality for finding out what's in your photos. Like you can say, show me all my photos of a horse and they will show it to you. And it's really good. It is right now better than Apple stuff. And like they've got incredible degrees of precision, but they can do things like show me all my photos with the Eiffel Tower in it. Well, if they know your photo has the Eiffel Tower, they know you traveled to France and they know you will take leisure trips to travel. Hey, marketers, United Airlines, you want to send some ads to someone? This person might be in your target demographic. You know, they're going to sell that data. They won't say that it's used specifically, but they will make sure that those ads show up on your, you know, using of Gmail or whatever else. That being said, it's not the worst thing in the world. Because it is being anonymized, they're not exposing sensitive information about you. American Airlines doesn't know that you, Bob, are getting this ad. It's just being served to somebody who's in their tar- target demographic. Yep. And for you as a user, if you're going to see ads, wouldn't you rather see ads that you might actually take action on yeah. than like random ads that don't pertain to your life at all? Yeah. And like, like I said before, they're giving you some pretty great services. Gmail is actually pretty awesome. Yeah. Google, Everybody uses Gmail. It's free email. Their and it's spam great is like the best spam filtering I've ever had in any of my email providers. Yeah. And they, they don't have a, like the limit of uh, messages and sizes is really high. Their photo services are great. Their Microsoft office equivalents are pretty damn good and much better than Microsoft for collaboration. Like there's a lot of good stuff they're offering in exchange for being able to monetize the information they find in your files. So if you're willing to be a product for Google, you get all this awesome stuff in return. Yep. But you at least need to think about the fact that you are a product for Google. They don't care about you as a person. It's not like, you know, Valerie and customer service gives a crap if your file goes missing. Who cares? Right. You're but a they, they do care very much about the security of their of yes. your data. In terms of security, I think Google is at the top of the game. Yeah, they spend an exorbitant amount of resources, uh, financial and human, on making stuff, making sure that your data is secure and that no one else is going to get access to it except for them. And even within their own systems, they, you know, they anonymize this stuff pretty quickly so that, you know, not every system can actually access it. And they make sure that their employees can't too, unless there's someone who absolutely positively needs to be able to, to investigate security stuff. Another thing to think about with Google is, like any other provider, they can cut you off. So perhaps they think that your account has somehow um, contravened their terms of service, so they're going to like like cut off access to your Gmail account, or maybe they think you're, I don't know, hosting kitty porn on Google Drive, so they will kill your Google Drive account. Yeah. Um, this happens sometimes. It's not anything to do with your fault. It's something in their algorithm that says something is going on, even if it's not. Yeah. And there's very little recourse for you as a user when that happens. There's effectively none. And this doesn't they're pretty good in that it doesn't you don't hear these about these happening very often, but it does happen from time to time. And what people don't realize is then they're kind of screwed because all the stuff that's in your Gmail address, you don't have access to that anymore. Right. And all the websites where you need to, you know, reset Reset your password. Oh, where does that password reset email go to? Oh, that goes to Google Mail. I 
can't get to Google Mail anymore. Now I can't get into this website, you know, and a whole bunch of stuff like that. Email, which we're about to get into, is it gets... Um, it can get really bad if you do not own access to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we go to that, though... We're not, I, I have to, other things to talk about for cloud services. Okay. Uh, well, one quick thing I would note is... Services like Backblaze and Google Drive, um, actually I'm not positive about Google Drive, but services frequently will have a different pricing structure for, hey, this is just an individual backing up their computer versus this is someone backing up a NAS or something like that. For example, Backblaze charges five thousandths of a cent per gigabyte, I think, or something like that to back up. And to back up a NAS. Yeah, to back up a NAS. Whereas the personal account is like $5 a month. Yeah. So, so it's it's different sort of right, pricing. Structure. Right. So if you have a ton of – because NAS users can you know, frequently have a ton – someone who pays that much attention to their data storage frequently has more data. So it could actually be a lot more cost for them to host your stuff. So there can be different pricings. But from what we've seen, it's, it's all pretty damn affordable. Um, to the point of providers cutting you off though – one thing I didn't have plans to mention here, but it's really useful to mention in this context, PayPal is notorious for, for no apparent reason, suspending accounts. And this can happen while you have money in a PayPal account. Never leave money in a PayPal account. Never leave money in a PayPal account. So there are a number of perfectly legitimate businesses that have used PayPal to receive payments from clients, and PayPal has decided for whatever reason... They're going to suspend your account, and they seize the money that's in your account. Yeah. And it's crazy. It, a lot of the stories revolve around like, oh, I used to just get an occasional little, little bit of money, and then I got a big payment from someone, and they go, whoa, whoa, why is there suddenly a big payment? Shut this down. This might be piracy. This might be fraud. This might be bad. And maybe you'll get your money back. Maybe you won't because they are not a bank. They are not beholden to the federal regulations governing banks. So if you get money in PayPal, pull it out immediately. But to the bigger point, any service you use may be prone to these issues. So whenever you're using any digital service, make sure that anything that is valuable to you, if it's content or cash, whatever it is, have a local version of that or have it off of that service as quickly as yeah, possible. You should be able to lose any of these digital services and not be completely screwed. Exactly. Um, so I'm going to take a minute to talk about Dropbox, because Dropbox in particular has some business practices that I as a person am not comfortable with, and I just want everybody who is using Dropbox to be aware of these things and make a decision on your own whether or not this really bothers you. It bothers me. It may not bother you. Um, so there are a few scandals around Dropbox, and I was saying earlier that if geeks like something, it's usually a good sign. Geeks are pretty angry with Dropbox. For a variety of reasons. A lot of us use it because it's Easy. still a good service yeah. and it works with a ton of things, but it doesn't mean we're necessarily happy with them. And and it's convenient, yeah. period. Like, people are much more reluctant to change something when they have something that's working already mm -hmm. because the cost of changing, the friction of that is really um, prohibitive for most people. But so there are a number of issues with Dropbox. One is um, throughout its history, Dropbox has had issues of... Uh, hacking through social engineering. 
And what that means is people don't know your username or your email address or your um, password necessarily. Usually they have some personal information about you and they use what is called social engineering to get Dropbox to grant them access to your account. And often that may be they call up Dropbox's customer service with some sort of sob story like, oh my gosh, my I lost my computer, I don't have access to this email account anymore, but I need my Dropbox account, like help me get in. And if they have even a few personal details about you, like your name and address, or maybe um, like, like someone has gotten a piece of mail from you or something and they have your address, or they can look you up online and have your address, or your age, or your birth date, or your current employer they could get from LinkedIn. Like there's so many ways to find data about you on the internet, which they can then use to customer service to get access to your account. This is sort of an atypical problem because most people are not important enough to warrant social engineering hacks. This takes time and effort from a person. So unless you're really high profile... But it's not actually hard. No. Unless you're really high profile, like say you're J.K. Rowling and all of a sudden you're very important or you're Patrick Rothfuss and like everybody knows who you are, then this might be more of a concern. For your average person, this is probably not such an issue. But the fact that it's possible is something that geeks don't like and I don't like. But there's more important issues. Um, in 2014, which granted was a few years ago, there was a really big scandal at Dropbox because people had discovered that um, a group of machines, so probably a botnet that somebody, like maybe the Russians, had taken over a bunch of computers, were trying random email and password combinations at Dropbox to try to get access to accounts. And they had tried hundreds of thousands of combinations and Dropbox never even realized this was happening. So a lot of services, they can tell if these sorts of things are happening. It's like a type of computer attack. Yeah, you just monitor the number of requests coming in. Hey, this is a lot of requests right now. And because Dropbox never even noticed that, there is the implication that their security is lax in a way that's really alarming. As someone who has access to all of your files and potentially personal data, like maybe you store your passwords in Dropbox or account information or bank information in Dropbox, the fact that it's so easy uh, to gain access slash that Dropbox isn't taking security as seriously as it should is really concerning. Uh, there was another issue last year in 2016 where, at least for Mac users, Dropbox was taking control of system features without asking for your permission to do it. Or if you did grant it permission once, but then later tried to revoke that permission, it would give itself permission again. Yeah, it was very sketchy. So what this meant was it was trying to get access to accessibility features, which are things like if you um, have poor vision, your computer can talk to you instead of making you look at the screen. Or if you have ac trouble accessing certain buttons or whatever, like on your iOS devices? They're, they're intended it. to modify and give a lower level of access to the system for tools that will help people with various impairments. Unfortunately, they're also really useful for a variety of other things. And like I've got a couple apps that do use the accessibility features, even though I'm not vision impaired. But I grant it to them because they give me good functionality. But the thing is, when you give uh, accessibility access the application has a lot more control over your computer than other types of applications. Yeah. So what this means is that Dropbox could theoretically like upload and download files without you knowing it or access files and directories other than your Dropbox directory. Yep. And 
basically they granted themselves access to stuff they shouldn't have and they shouldn't be allowed to. It's very sketchy for an app to go, oh, you took away my permission? Oh, I'll give it back to myself. Yeah, I need it to operate. That's not cool. Not at all. And even if Dropbox itself never actually does anything illicit with these permissions, the fact that it has these permissions means that if hackers ever gain access to Dropbox, they can do bad stuff to your computer too. So it's not just whether or not Dropbox would use it in a bad way, it's now can that be exploited by other people who get access to Dropbox. Around the same time that this was becoming an issue, people were making a big fuss about this, it was also revealed that over 68 million Dropbox accounts were potentially compromised in a hack that took place in 2012. So this was in 2016. And in 2012, there was a hack where up to 68 million Dropbox accounts were accessed or compromised by hackers. And when this sort of information came out in 2016, what happened was Dropbox suggested a preventative password reset. Right. Four years later, they didn't mention anything. No, they're like, hey, maybe you should change your password um, for security reasons. But they didn't say, oh, yeah, we were hacked four years ago, and almost 70 million of you might have been compromised. They didn't breathe a word about that. Yeah, it's not cool. The fact that they were so silent about their security issues and attempting to hide these issues from the public, in my opinion, means they are not trustworthy. And so I personally don't want to use them. Um, Like Daggery said, a lot of geeks use Dropbox but aren't necessarily happy with it. I, for one, only put data in there that I wouldn't mind if someone, random person in the public got access to or was encrypted. But aside from data that is in Dropbox, these other issues mean that using Dropbox can make your laptop vulnerable to hackers. People can exploit those issues and get into your computer and do stuff they shouldn't do. Um, There's another thing. uh, Dropbox had to defend a feature of its called uh, Project Infinite. And the idea behind that feature was that you could access anything in Dropbox just like it was stored locally on your computer. But you didn't need... You could have... Like, say you only had a 200-gigabyte hard drive, you could store it up to a terabyte in Dropbox and access all of that just like it was a local drive. Right. Right now, with Dropbox and Box and Solutions like that, that are just backing up a folder, you still have to have whatever the amount of space that that folder has on your hard drive. Right, because it's just backing up a physical folder on your hard drive. So the downside of this project um, is that in order to operate properly, it required Dropbox to have kernel access to your computer. So for most of us non-geeks, that doesn't mean anything. But what it actually means is that kernel access is a really low level of access to your system that doesn't have any checks on it, really. It's the lowest level, and no, it doesn't. So you, the, anybody who can compromise Dropbox and get that kernel access into your system can do anything they want on your computer. They could use you as part of a botnet to go attack something else. They could rifle through all of your personal stuff for bank accounts or credit card information. They could look out your webcam. They can look out your webcam. That's a terrifying one. I mean, there's so much that is bad, in my opinion, about Dropbox, so I don't want to use it anymore. But a lot of people find the convenience of it worth the risks. They say, oh, well, you know, this is never really going to be an issue for me. I don't care. It's not something I worry about. 
And that's fine. If that's not a problem for you, then go for it. And in their defense, hopefully they've been going, oh, shoot, we screwed that up. We should get better about this. And hopefully they've been beefing up their security. They've been paying attention to a lot of things lately. How good have they done of a job? And we don't know. But even if they've increased their security, they're still doing sketchy things with the, oh, I'll give give myself my access back. Yeah. So my main issue is the fact that Dropbox just hasn't been transparent about these issues. They haven't communicated openly about it. I wouldn't mind so much if these things were problems and Dropbox said, oh, yeah, we get it, guys. Like, this is an issue. Here's what we're doing to address it. We're doing X, Y, and Z, and we totally understand why you'd be upset. The fact that they're trying to hide these things makes me go, what other issues are they not telling us about? One of the reasons that we use DreamHost for hosting our various sites is that... Whenever something goes wrong, and no matter what service you use, something will go wrong eventually because it's backed by humans and bad things happen in the world. Like whenever something goes wrong, like a server goes down on DreamHost, like they are so upfront and clear about it. Hey, this thing went wrong. We're working on it right now. We'll keep you informed. And afterwards, if it's a particularly big thing, they'll be like, hey, here's here's what went wrong and here's the steps we're taking to make sure it never happened again. And it's like, I, I can deal with that. I, that's great. Yeah, with any type of any type of technology, stuff's going to go wrong. The question is, when does it happen? How many people does it affect? And how does the company deal with it? Like, are they going to be open with you about, oh, this bad thing happened and here's how we're fixing it and... In the future, this particular bad thing won't happen again. Like Just being trustworthy right. is a big difference in my mind. But I think we've gone down a rabbit hole. Yeah. So, okay, that is cloud storage. So you should have local backups of things, and you should be backing up your things to the cloud. Because your computer or your house might... Die. Die. Hopefully you don't. Yes. Um, aside from file storage, there are other things that are digital assets that you probably don't think about, but you also need to protect... One of them is email. We talked about this a little bit when we spoke about Gmail and how they own all the stuff and what happens if you get locked out of your Gmail account. It's bad things, TM. So you really ought to have an email address that you control, and it may be with a web host or some other um, provider. And because you can get cut off at any time, whether you're using Google or you're using a paid provider, say, what if your host goes out of business? In theory, they should give you some warning, but they don't always. Sometimes people are just sketchy and don't care. Um, because you can get cut off at any time, you should not leave things in your email address that are important. Download it, keep a local file. If it's a cover or an invoice or uh, in a communication you had with your designer or something from your editor, whatever it is, if it's related to your business, make a local copy of it. And to our point about an email you control, basically that comes down to having your own domain, which we're probably going to cover in a second. Yes, domain is next. But it should be noted that you can do things like what I do is I don't want to run a mail server. I'm a geek and I know what's involved in running a mail server and it sucks. Gmail's a really good thing. I don't mind Google having access to my stuff. I have my own domains, and they just ultimately point straight to Google. My data is in my my email data is in Google, and if it's important, yes, I download it, like Dakri said. But if Google cuts me off, like they don't own my domain name, I can just repoint my domain to another service. The same email address keeps working, and I don't care. 
Um, for me, I use my web host to host my email. So I have my own domains, and then I have the web host has those domains pointing to email accounts that I just they have. They have their own email server instead exactly. of using Gmail. Um, so I have my, those email accounts are set up locally on my laptop and on my um, phone and everything, but it's talking to my web host's email instead of to Gmail's email. Yes, and in case you aren't aware, let's say you, like, on the Mac, there's mail.app, which is Apple's email client. So let's say you're using a client, you know, on your computer like that. You're not using the web interface. Or on your phone. Of Gmail. Or, right. I, I, let's say you're using a separate app, not the web interface on your phone, on your tablet, on your computer, whatever. Do not assume that means that you actually have copies of the email locally. The right. way most of these work is you may have the one you just looked at copied locally or some of the recent ones, but most everything is actually still out on the cloud, even if you've already looked at it locally. So don't assume you've got a local backup of your email just because you use an email, an email app. client. Yeah, so with um, mail.app, that's a good point. The configuration that I use is called IMAP, I-M-A-P. Which is what most people use. And that means that the content itself lives on the web server somewhere, not locally on my device. Um, Back in the olden days, before IMAP became a big thing, I would use POP protocol, which means that the content actually gets downloaded locally onto your device. But it also means you're spending a lot of disk space. Filling right. up with email. Exactly. Especially with how much email we get these days. And the flip side of that is when you're using POP, sometimes it still lives on the server and you've got the local copy. Alternately, sometimes POP will um, delete the copies on the server when it downloads to your device. And then if your device blows up, you don't have the copies. Right. So if you're using POP on your laptop, for example, and then you want to access it from your phone, but the laptop version is deleting the content from the server then your phone has to sync with the laptop to get that right. content. In other words, we're getting to a bunch of geeky stuff. You don't need to But the short this. version yeah. is don't assume that because you're using a, co- a client on your laptop or local computer. That or phone. It's a local computer. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, that you actually have copies of your email. It's probably still on the cloud if you're like most people. And if you really care how it's set up, look for information on IMAP and POP. Uh, So we talked about this briefly, domain. So when you set up a website, you're going to have a domain, which is a website address that tells people where to go to find your website. Brightlittlelight.press. Brightlittlelight.press. One of our authors is using her name, ReneeDarcy.com. Me, for my personal stuff, before I started doing Bright Little Light, uh, I have DaiquiriCarry.com. Um, Kay has his own domains for his stuff. Too many. (laughs) And all of these point to a web host where your content actually lives. So there's two things you need to know. One is if you're using a free service like WordPress, if you're using the free version of WordPress, um, I don't know if it's .com or .org, I forget which is which. Doesn't matter. Then your domain is probably something like wordpress.com slash your name. Or WordPress.com slash your book title. Or your book title dot WordPress.com. I right. forget how they do it. But it, does, it doesn't really matter. It depends on the site how they do it. But, but in that case, that is not a domain that you own. Yeah. If WordPress decides to go out of business, unlikely, or cut you off, probably also unlikely. You, you don't have that domain anymore. Right. Or what if simply their server where your stuff is stored blows up? 
Um, one of the WordPress so I options, either the .com or the .org, the not free one, um, you can use your own domain with it. It is unclear to me if you register that domain through a domain registrar, which is a third party, or if WordPress is the registrar for your domain. Both. Either is an option. If WordPress is the registrar, that means effectively it's inextricably tied to your WordPress account. There may be options for you to get it out if you decide you want to have your uh, website hosted somewhere else. Like maybe you want to start a Squarespace website or you want to use Wix or maybe you even want your own WordPress blog um, website sort of off of WordPress so you can have more control over it. WordPress is software and a service with the same name. Yeah, it's confusing. Um, so a lot of people really like some of the plugins that are available if you're using the WordPress platform on your own website and they want to get off of the free WordPress onto their own website, but there may be migration issues with that domain name. Right. Now, given I, my understanding is that WordPress is pretty good about yeah. it, but we're we're just using WordPress as a stand-in for the the general situation. There's especially with a lot of the smaller hosts and web hosts, web, web hosts, and this isn't as much an issue these days. But it does happen from time to time. You'll have the web host say, "Oh yeah, we can register a domain for you," and they register a domain for you, and we'll put, hook it up to your site. And you go, "Okay, I want to take my business elsewhere." Okay, fine, but the domain is ours. Right. This is a, sort of a common practice way back in the early days of the internet. The web host was also the domain owner. So you could theoretically take your content somewhere else if you knew how to get it off the web host. But if the web host isn't even giving you SFTP, it's we don't need to get that yeah. Google. That but but the, the key problem being, well, they control if the, if the they domain. Own it. Yeah, or even if they don't own it and they're the registrar and don't feel like playing ball and letting you transfer it, like they can hang on to that. So we we recommend not putting your hosting in the same basket as your registrar. Uh, there are a lot of great companies out there that register will manage domain name registration for you. Uh, we typically use Hover, Hover.com, and they we. You register the domain name there, and you know they can optionally do email for you too. A lot of these services do, but more importantly, they just pay attention to the domain name. They say, "Where do you want it to point?" And you go, "Point it over there." And they go, "Okay." And now your WordPress site, your WordPress blog, has you know DaiquiriCarry.com instead of WordPress.com, and you get to use their stuff. But if WordPress goes down, you still control your domain name. If WordPress suddenly gets bought by a really sketchy company and doesn't feel like giving anyone their domain names back, you don't care. You own your domain name. Right. And so if you use something like GoDaddy, where you can register a domain, but they also do your web hosting, that can get kind of sketchy, whether or not they'll let you take away all those things. And a lot of times you can do it but they they want you to keep using their service, so they make it difficult. So they make you jump through a lot of bells and hoops and say, um, uh, the service I used to use was iPower, and I had them as my uh, domain registrar, and I was hosting my website through them. Usually I wouldn't think about changing that until when my domain was up for renewal, and I would get the email saying, hey, it's time to renew your domain. Then I'd be like, oh, yeah, I really want to transfer that off of iPower just so that I don't have everything under them. And they say, no, 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 you can't do that within 60 days of domain renewal. 
you have to do it either two months ahead of time or two months after you renew it. Because they know no one's going to remember when they don't have to renew their domain. Exactly. So while, yes, I could easily take it away, well, while, yes, I could take it away, it wasn't easy. They would throw up issues, making it more difficult to just move it somewhere else. And uh, related to that, if you use one of these services and you are not the technical contact for the domain name, like, for example, if WordPress is the technical contact or in the case of um, iPower, one of my former clients had a website through iPower that he had paid iPower to design. And when they did that, they put their own person as a technical contact on that uh, domain name. So when he wanted to migrate away from iPower, they said, sure, but you can't take the domain because the technical contact is like George Smith. And my client said, well, then t let me talk to George Smith and get him to sign it over to me. Oh, well, George Smith doesn't work here anymore. Well, where's the contact information to George Smith so I can get him to sign it over to me? Oh, well, we don't keep that kind of stuff. And even if we do, we're not going to give it to you. Really, they're just making his life difficult because they don't want to lose his business. Exactly. In, 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 in general, with hosting... Go with big companies. Don't go with the... I mean, iPower is a big company. Go with bigger companies. <laughs> <laughs> I would say in general with hosting, have your um, domain registered somewhere where your hosting is not. Yeah. So you don't have all your eggs in one basket so that if someone gives you issues, you can have more options. Right. Also, with transferring a domain name, a lot of people go, oh, I want to uh, wait until the renewal is up so I, you know, because I paid for a year, I don't right. want to lose the end of the year. You don't actually lose the end of the year. So, like, if halfway through the year you transfer it to another company, you'll pay that another company for another year, but you still get the half a year you had because you already paid for that. Like, it's, they all do this, so don't worry about transferring when it's not up for renewal. But transferring near when it's up for renewal, there is actually a technical limitation around that. So in my case with iPower, it wasn't just that they were trying to um, keep my business. It also takes a certain amount of time to transfer a domain from one registrar to another. It's pretty short. Well, in iPower's case, they said it was anywhere from 3 to 11 days. And there is that technical transfer time. So if you started your transfer two days before your registration wears out and your um, domain doesn't like go through, the transfer doesn't go through within that time period, then you no longer have your domain registered. Actually, they've taken some steps to make that a little safer, but... It used to be the case, and there may still be technical limitations around it. Anyway, we don't need to get too deep into that. Um, the other thing is website hosting. So thing to keep in mind about that is who hosts your website? And what happens if you want to take that website somewhere else or if the host goes out of business? Or catches on fire. Yeah, like they – the thing that most people don't think about, whenever someone is hosting your content, what that means is your website, the content that's on it, the backgrounds and the words and the files are actually sitting on a computer in a warehouse somewhere. And you don't know what their backup policies are. And a lot of these companies, oh, geez, we should have been backing that up better. Yeah, people who aren't really familiar with this think, oh, my, my content's out in the cloud, it's safe. All the cloud is, is someone else's computer. Yep. It is physical hardware that may not have these backup policies we've been talking about, like redundancy, and if those things die, your content is gone. Given with, with services that specialize on it uh, and focus on Legitimate it. Legitimate ones. Right, right. Like uh, like Dropbox, Box, right. Backblaze, Google Cloud, iCloud Drive. Like, yeah, they've got it distributed across multiple yeah, devices. Yeah, like any, 
any of their drives can die, any of their computers can die, and your bet your data is still safe. But there have that- been some scary situations. Like there was one thing when a whole data center went down, and that people were concerned about. I think people actually did lose access to some of their content, but not all. But that's pretty rare. That's usually a slightly different scenario. I think you're probably thinking about when the data. Uh... Anyways, no, I wasn't thinking to, about we're that. Going, yeah. We're going. We don't need to go this deep. Um, point is. When you're using a web host, A, find one that's legitimate. Try to avoid local MaPa web hosts because those are probably people who have like a, a big, tall computer in their basement that has your content on it. They may not have a good offsite storage solution. Like you, you might be sort of screwed. Um, the other thing is to think about how that company handles it when you want to move to some other company. Right. If you ever want to go somewhere cheaper or if you ever want some features that some other company offers, you want something that you can easily take from company A to company B. And to our earlier point and slightly to this point, uh, like I think a lot of you probably have a WordPress blog because it's a pretty good way to put your stuff. And it's free if you're using WordPress.com right. or org, but one of them. Pretty much wherever you go and have a WordPress blog or anything like that, there's going to be a mechanism to download your database. And database is just, it's where all the data is stored. (laughs) It's a home base for your data. Um, It's going to contain all, it's probably not going to contain the images, but it will just contain all of the posts that you've put to your site. The images, but either way, there is a place in your hosting provider where you can go and download a copy of your database. And you should do that on a regular basis. And that way, if your site blows up, you can recreate it from this backup. Now, with that in mind, though, I have seen authors lately talking about how they use companies to design their website, and those companies also host their website. They may not give you the option to download your database. Right. Like, talk to them about what the backup options are and how you can get local copies of it. Yeah, and, well, this also goes to the whole don't keep all your eggs in one basket thing. Yeah. Hey, we can design and host your site. That's great. You design it. I'll have someone else host it, you know? Or I'll let you design and host it as long as you give me an easy way to download it, to back it up, and to transfer it elsewhere when the time comes. And don't just take their word for it. No. Um, Google the name of the company and reviews, or Google the name of the company and transfer website. Personally, I just wouldn't let them host it. But, I mean, there's good excuses when people might want to do that, and they're not technical. I disagree with Kay. I think it's fine with letting them host it, as long as it's easy for you to move it elsewhere. Yeah. But definitely Google for those things, and you know, let the internet tell you. If there are a bunch of people who complain, these people wouldn't let me have my files, don't use those people. Yeah. But whatever, whatever service you use, whatever blog or system you use, download the database regularly and download any files that you've uploaded to it. You know, if you've got a bunch of images on this thing, download them all because it's usually when, say you've got an image you took, a picture, a photo you took, and you've got it backed up through Dropbox or whatever, and then you upload it to the website and like, Okay, technically you do have a copy of that, but when it got uploaded to the website, it resized it, it made multiple versions of it, it stored it in the database, and the database says, okay, I know to look for it in this folder. which With is this usually, name? With this name, with this date, and it's like, if you don't back up the folder structure of all those images on the server too, you're not going to be able to recreate it very easily. So you may have all the text, but all the images are now missing and very difficult or a lot of manual labor to recreate. 
So related to that, we're going to talk now about storage strategies. So these are the things that you need to think about when you are deciding how you want to manage your storage. And Kay just said file structure. So file structure of WordPress blogs may be in a certain format or whatever. You need to be regimented about the file structure that you are using for your files locally. Just to be clear, file structure is just the organization of folders and files on your computer. So what I mean when I say file structure, as Kay just mansplained... I wasn't um, mansplaining. <laughs> what explaining. I, what I mean when I say file structure is... Um, Use a particular naming strategy and a place where you're going to keep things on your computer. So in my situation, um, I have a folder for each title that Bright Little Light Press has published. And that folder is named the name of the title. And that lives in a file folder called Bright Little Light Press. And in that title folder, there is another folder for um, ad images and... Uh, cover images, any sort of images that are related to that title. There is a folder for the book files related to that title. So there's an EPUB folder, there's a Kindle folder, um, there's a PDF file. All of those live in their own folder. Then there's another folder for invoices that are related to that title so that I have the paper trail. And finally, there is the manuscript of that title, which lives just at the root level of that title's folder. So all of the things that are related to this book are in this folder, but each of them are organized, and so I can find them easily, and I know, oh, I need an image for America's Favorite Couple, for example. Click into Bright Little Light Press, click into America's Favorite Couple, click into Images. There's all my stuff. You can even add more underneath that for, like, cover images and add images if you want to be even more organized. The second thing, if you're doing this, you need to be consistent about doing it the same way with all of your things. So in my example, there would be another folder for um, Della's Diary, which is another one of the titles we published. There's another folder for Winter in Love, which is coming soon, and it already has a folder started. And this sort of structure is useless if I don't use the same thing every time. So if I, you know, say get a manuscript from one of our authors and don't put it in a folder, say I leave it in my email or something, Suddenly, my system is falling down. And the other thing about doing it this way is when you have it in this organized way, you know exactly where all the things are related to it. So all of my images go in the title images folder. So when I'm backing up stuff, I know as long as that folder is backed up, I have everything related to that title. Now, the counter argument to this, which I'm sure a lot of people will make, is, you know, you see people who just throw everything on the desktop of their computer because that's the default folder says, they're, oh, sure, save it. And a lot of people will counter, like, well, I don't have any trouble finding my stuff. I just find, I start typing the name, there it is. The key to that is I start typing the name. You have to remember the name of everything if it's all in this one massive folder. If you organize things, you don't have to sit there remembering, no, wait, what did I call that file? Or, you know, just... Like, it's organized. It's all put away. Like, hey, the stuff for here is over here, and the invoices will be in the invoices folder. It's just makes your thing, life easier. Um, maybe you organize your content by type. So maybe all of your manuscripts live in one folder, and all of your images live in fo one folder. The downside of that is then you have to remember which ones are related to which title. So especially when you get into, like, ad um, images, they may not be named in a way that is consistent with your 
title of the book. So we have different um, different image types for America's Favorite Couple, for example, for ads, for uh, graphic design that has been done, for the cover art. All those have different sort of naming structures. So if I had one giant image folder that had all of the images for America's Favorite Couple, all of the images for Della's Diary, all of the images for Winter in Love, like mixed in together, it's much more difficult for me to find the exact one I want. And it can be more difficult to select what I want to use when I'm setting something new up. Like if I have everything organized, all of the America's Favorite Couple things are in this folder that's called Images. I click into that folder. I can scan the images in there and go, oh, I really like this one. I want to use this image when I'm making the next ad. But if everything is mixed in together, then you have to look and go, okay, well, this one's related to America's Favorite Couple, but this one's from Della's Diary. I don't need that. And this one's from Winter in Love. Like, it just gets really complicated, unnecessarily complicated. It's a time saver when you can be really organized. And definitely, you know, do whatever works best for you. If having everything that is the same type of file in one folder is what you prefer, sure, do it. Do whatever is going to make it easy for you to find the files. But personally, I recommend being a bit more structured because then it just makes everything easier to deal with. And then you also know you've gotten everything you need to have when you do the backups. To Kay's point about using desktop, um, some of the automatic backup stuff only backs up certain folders on your drive. Like maybe it only backs up your document folder. Your desktop is at a level higher than that folder. Or so, off to the side. Or off to the side. Um, so it probably doesn't get backed up unless you have told it to back up your desktop. So the things that are living there may not be getting backed up. So it's yeah. just something to think about. It depends on what backup strategy you're using. Right, exactly. Um, but the important thing here is to create a strategy and then to use it. Don't just start letting everything pile up because the longer you let everything live together and get all mixed in the more difficult it's going to be to organize it if you decide down the road that you want to be more structured about it. So that's it, just to think about it when you're sort of planning your overall backup strategy. All right, so I know this has gotten to be a very long podcast. I apologize. We had a lot to say on the topic. Um, Hopefully you found it helpful. I'm going to try to put the names of the providers we've talked about here in the show notes, but maybe you want to go back through and write some stuff down. I don't know. I think the short version would be, hey, have an external drive that is n- you that is going to back up your stuff without you having to press a button, and then have a solution to get your stuff into Off-site. the cloud. Yep. You know, maybe it's your external drive is automatically backing it up to the cloud. Maybe it's you've installed Backblaze. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Just make sure that your computer can blow up and your house can blow up. And your data is going to be fine. Also, make sure that you'll be fine, too. Yeah. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, think about things besides just your manuscript. You want to have your um, images, invoices, anything that is essential to the running of your business has to be backed up. Well, I, I, I would think of it slightly differently. I would think that if you're thinking about the specific files, you're going to screw it up. Have everything on your computer backed up without you thinking about it, and this won't be a problem. I don't disagree with that. My point is just don't think that if you have your manuscripts backed up, you have everything you need. Yep. That's what I'm trying to say. Anyway, thank you for listening, guys, and I hope you found this helpful. Um, As always, if you have any feedback or if you have a topic you'd like to hear about in a future podcast, hit us up on Twitter at BLL Press or on Facebook at BLL Press 
or at our website at brightlittlelight.press. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.